You are listening to the Weekly Discourse on the Man of God Network, featuring a weekly lecture from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. All right, once again, this is History of Preaching and Preachers, and we are about to begin Lecture 20. We're picking right up in the latter part of the 19th century, talking about... uh, preaching and other religious matters in that latter third of the century. We've already talked just a little bit about it, but we were forced to uh, draw the last lecture to a close in the middle of that material. So let's pick up where we were. In England, uh, the Keswick, some might pronounce that Keswick, religious leaders and writers served as the primary source of this newer mysticism. We talked about a rise of mysticism uh, in this third of the century, and this group, these leaders, these writers helped to influence many towards that position. Missionary efforts at home and abroad were strengthened during this time. Contributions for missionary work were on the increase, as well as management of the work. It was being done professionally and very businesslike, uh, so as to give you know, trust and confidence for those who were contributing to it. Uh, they didn't have doubts about how the money was being managed so they were confident in their, in their giving. There were evangelistic campaigns by American preachers in England. Uh, for example, Moody and Sankey came and, and preached some, uh, and they, uh, in these revival efforts, they had great variety, great results as well. Outdoor preaching was popular at this time, and there was a, a series of hand-to-hand appeals that were frequently used. And my understanding of that expression simply means, you know, one person reaching and bringing another to attend, to be involved, and, and personally witnessing, personally uh, being involved with sharing the gospel and encouraging others. Intellectual, moral, and spiritual influences molded the religious life of this great period of English history. Of this period, Dargan says, it was never more alive and vigorous, never more enlightened and cultured, never more thoughtful and trained for service, never more courageous and resolute, never more intensely devoted to the task. The British pulpit showed itself strong, earnest, capable, practical. So again, fairly high praise for it. Again, that's not saying that all the sermons were were solid and good and beneficial, but it had an impact nevertheless. It was a very influential uh, source of, in that that religious day. Every aspect of preaching, content, form, quality, and effect, all those things were represented by a great variety among the preachers of the day. That that goes along with what we just said. You have a whole array of preachers giving a whole array of types and varieties and styles of preaching at that time. So it was a very influential source I mean, that's one of the reasons why you have Spurgeon, who's able to sell his, his sermons uh, and, and do so well with them. People, they were in demand. People were still wanting to know what uh, Spurgeon and other preachers were saying and preaching. They wanted to know that, particularly if they weren't able to be in attendance themselves. And so people were very interested in what was coming out of the pulpits in that day. In particular, the polemic and apologetic elements of preaching were prominent in the English sermons at the end of the 19th century. On the whole, there's a marked ability in dealing with the opponents of Christianity. So again, sermons were showing more of an an apologetic 
uh, type of approach, more of a defense of the faith. And again, makes sense, doesn't it? Because the faith is under attack at this point. Uh, the faith is under attack from those who would seek to say that, that God didn't actually create, uh, that uh, Christianity is not trustworthy or reliable, it's mythical, it's just manufactured, it's not the Word of God. All of these arguments, again, doing the very same thing you see all the way back in Genesis 3, undermining the authority of what God has said. The discourses at this time were more exegetical than expository and less topical than in former times. So, greater exegesis, but they weren't altogether expository, but they were less topical than they had been formerly. And lastly, the preaching in this period was somewhat more cultured, even though its style was very simple and even, and even more so than before, and direct, short, and practical. So there you have it, a lot of specifics and material covering the three sub-periods of the 19th century, and even at that we've left a lot of information out, a lot of individuals, a lot of movements, a lot of occurrences. Obviously there's no way to cram all of 100 years into even a couple of hours of lecture, but hopefully these were the most important of the high points for our consideration and in this particular context. Now let's talk about some of the preachers of that 19th century England in particular, and to look specifically at their lives with a little bit of detail. First of all, let's look at Robert Murray McShane. Robert Murray McShane. Now he is the one preacher who is not English properly that we're going to be looking at. He is Scottish, um, and of course lived a very short life, only 30 years of age when he died. But he was certainly one of the best-known Scottish preachers of his day. McShane was born in Edinburgh, and he learned the Greek alphabet at age four. He was able to write it correctly on his slate with chalk. He could write it out, and there it was. So he, he knew it by the age of four, and by twice that, at age eight, he entered high school. At age 14, he entered the University of Edinburgh. At age 18... He was all finished with that, and he began his ministerial studies. He had an older brother who died that same year, and that had a pronounced effect on him for the rest of his life. McShane was involved in few, if any, moral improprieties, and yet he still believed himself to be the chief of sinners. Apparently on one occasion he went uh, and hung out with some friends who were playing cards. Uh, was very troubled in his conscience about having done that. On another occasion, he went to simply a social gathering of some of his friends, and apparently the conversation uh, became a little worldly, and he just felt absolutely miserable about it. He was very troubled in his conscience and in his spirit for having been involved in those activities. So he was very concerned at this point about holiness, very concerned about piety, uh, and, and felt very uncomfortable when he crossed over the lines as he understood them. He was licensed to preach at age 22 and became known for his gifts of proclamation at a relatively early age, or young age. Uh, McShane was taught by Thomas Chalmers, whom we've just spoken about, and he was a minister in the Church of Scotland. Now remember, he only lived to be 30. He was licensed to preach at age 22, so he's just got seven or eight years here in which he can be involved in ministry before he dies. In 1839, he was sent on a tour of Palestine as part of a missionary project. Uh, the, the church was going to send missionaries to the Jews 
there in Palestine, and so he was going there to kind of scope it out and, and see how the best way for them to do that missionary work might be. In 1842, he participated in a preaching tour of northern England. Uh, so he had opportunities to preach and to exercise his gifts. In March of 1843, he became ill and died, apparently, of typhus. Now, that is not the same thing as typhoid fever, okay? So don't confuse those two diseases. Um, they're not the same thing. Now, his death came just two months prior to the great disruption of 1843, which you've already talked about, where the Church of Scotland uh, formed the Free Church of Scotland uh, as those 400 or so ministers uh, left the church. But he didn't see it happen. Uh, he was not around when that took place. So in a preaching career that lasted only seven or eight years, McShane became remarkably famous throughout Scotland uh, McShane's sermons were deeply spiritual as he was heavily concerned about the uprightness of his character. Again, we see that happening when he was just a teenager, very preoccupied with making sure that his behavior, his deportment, his demeanor was glorifying to God. Weber, in his history, states that McShane had a fine, clear voice, a good face, <laughs> and a most attractive manner. I don't know if he's trying to say that he was just a handsome man or not. Um, not really sure about that, but regardless, he seems to have presented himself well. McShane wrote out the body of his sermons with great care and thoughtfulness. So he wrote the body out, okay, word for word, very thoughtful, very meticulous about getting that right. But he would add later an appropriate introduction, illustrations, applications, appeals, and conclusion when he preached the message. So he, he wrote out the body of the sermon, but he would add those other things in more extemporaneously whenever he would preach. Whether that was because he was moving from place to place and he would add in those illustrations and introductions and so forth based on the context he was in, based on his audience and so forth. Again, I'm not altogether sure, but that's, that's what he did. Uh, according to Andrew Bonar, one of his good friends, uh, he should have written out the other components as well. So I guess that means that uh, he did not um, have as much of a gift with extemporaneous delivery as he did with having <laughs> written it out previously. Now, he attempted to let his sermon divisions come directly from the biblical text and even verbatim if possible. Sometimes the divisions in his sermons were uh, very simple. I mean, sometimes they were exactly what Scripture would say, just a couple of words or so. Uh, sometimes they would seem simplistic and, and maybe not even all that helpful, but he, he, that was kind of his uh, own personal desire for his uh, sermon divisions to be done straight from the biblical uh, wording. And he also had two overarching principles of sermon construction. Number one, you've got to make sure to remember ruin by the fall. In other words, Bring your audience back to the, real, to the reality and the realization that they are sinners, that they have fallen and have come into disobedience uh, before God. And the number two, recovery, or maybe rescue, by the mediator. Uh, Jesus Christ has provided full and complete salvation for all those who will turn from sin and trust in Him, and Him alone for salvation. And so bringing these two things to bear in His sermons allowed him not only to communicate biblical truth, but certainly to 
call those in his congregation or those who heard him uh, to obey the gospel. Jesus Christ occupied the central place in his sermons, uh, which is a very good thing. Obviously, uh, lots of sermons at this time, not just in Scotland, but everywhere. Sometimes they would talk about all kinds of things, but they might not ever actually talk about the gospel. They might not ever actually talk about the need to trust in Jesus Christ, God's Son, for salvation. McShane participated in a small conference. There were about six individuals at most in there at any one time. And in this conference, they spent the entire day in Bible study and in confession, mutual confession, of those shortcomings that are especially common to clergymen. I think that's a good idea uh, for those who are serving in those common roles to be able to sit down together, not only study together, talk about uh, the Bible, but also to talk with one another about difficulties, hardships, shortcomings, and so forth that you have when you're in a, a pastorate or when you're in that kind of ministry, because few others can understand exactly what you're experiencing or exactly what you're going through unless they've been there themselves. The element which McShane most uniquely brought to the pulpit was winsomeness, a sentiment that made his sermons almost poetic and that thrilled his own heart and ultimately the hearts of his hearers. So as he was preaching, his own heart was stirred, and that enabled him to deliver his messages in such a way that his hearers' hearts were stirred too. In Weber's history of preaching... I'll share just briefly about McShane from his text on him. Andrew Bonar, we've mentioned him, a good friend of McShane's, related this story. He said, when McShane returned from his trip to Palestine, remember he went there to look into missionary opportunities with Jews that lived there. When he returned from his trip to Palestine, he reached Dundee on Thursday afternoon. He hurried at once to St. Peter's Church where he found a great assembly of clergymen and townspeople awaiting him. He gave out the 66th Psalm and then read 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 4. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified, etc., Then, McShane preached an admirable gospel sermon, making no reference whatsoever to his trip to the Holy Land. People crowded about him after the service, and he continued to speak to them in regard to Christ crucified. It had grown quite dark outside, and on his way home, people thronged about him, shaking hands, asking about his journey, but he continued to expound his text, bringing out thoughts that he had not touched upon in the church. This continued until he reached his home, now completely exhausted." So clearly, a man who loved to preach, loved to talk about the great things of the Lord. I mean, yeah, wouldn't, wouldn't you have been tempted to talk? Man, I had this great trip, and here's all the things that I saw and all the things that I did, and wouldn't this be a great opportunity for the Lord to do a great work among the people in Palestine? But that wasn't what he talked about in that particular occasion. He wanted to preach the Scriptures, and he wanted to dive deeply into their truth and convey that to the people. He was just passionate about that. So I, I found that to be a very interesting Uh, illustration from his good friend, Mr. Bonar. Let's move on and talk about J.C. Ryle, John Charles Ryle. 
Ryle was the son of a banker, and for a time he himself engaged in a career in business. His attention turned to the ministry, however, and he was ordained in 1841 when he was about 25 years old, having completed his course at Oxford. He filled many small or otherwise ordinary pulpits for several years, and, but he began to accumulate some accolades as he moved uh, into his later life and career. 1871, he was made the honorary dean of Norwich. In 1880, he was appointed bishop of Liverpool, an office he filled with energy and faithfulness for the rest of his life. <clears throat> he led the Low Church Party and was thoroughly evangelical in doctrine as well as greatly influential. Now, Ryle did not possess any unusually remarkable powers as a preacher. He was safe, sensible, earnest, and cultivated. His style is not marked by a high eloquence, but by purity and by loftiness of tone. Uh, Ryle's preaching in Exeter Hall in London is the likely source of his great noteworthiness. Why are we talking about this guy if he wasn't particularly, um, you know, Outstanding. Well, here's probably why he is so notable, is because of his preaching there in a context in which uh, people would come to preach. Uh, that was a, a venue where people came to preach on a regular basis, and to be invited to preach there was a considerable honor. And many of the sermons that he preached while there were addressed to working men. Again, he wasn't trying to reach or to communicate just with a highfalutin bunch or, or the more aristocratic. He was simply trying to talk to ordinary people about the ordinary nature of life and the need for salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, Ryle wrote more than a hundred gospel tracts, which enjoyed an enormous circulation. He's best known for his historical work, The Christian Leaders of the Last Century. And of course, when you consider when he wrote that, this would have been uh, a book referencing leaders from the, the late 18th century up through the time of uh, his life. As a student of church history and of the history of preaching in particular, Ryle became convinced that several periods of spiritual darkness have appeared in Christianity through the centuries, caused in every case by the wrong kind of preaching. When preachers fail to preach about sin and grace, Spiritual stagnation, followed by a national apostasy and moral breakdown, occurs. When the light of evangelical truth seems all but extinguished, the Lord raises up a great leader or group of leaders who brings a religious awakening through the faithful preaching of the gospel. That was what Ryle concluded. He looked back at religious history. He looked back at church history, preaching history, and, and just marked places where you had these lapses, and he found in virtually every case, there was a, a fall-off. There was a, a corresponding lapse in solid preaching at that time. And so he knows from this data that uh, for there to be a period of bad preaching is almost inevitably going to correspond with a, a lapse in the, the state of Christianity at the time in that particular geographic context. So, an interesting a uh, bit of information there. Again, not altogether surprising for us, but certainly um, uh, historical significance. Thank you for listening to the Weekly Discourse. If you've been blessed by this week's discourse, please consider subscribing to the Man of God Network so that you can continue to be blessed with resources like these. 
If you'd like to learn more about Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, visit us at cbtseminary.org.